You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse and along with our producer Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to the show today. I can't help but say that it's so it's so automatic for me, but Alex is away on a much deserved vacation. But on behalf of him, I will say thank you for joining us today. Our show is live. You can call in at 416-245-1534 and please do follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Our handle is at the Health Hub RMC. And if you would like to email us, we're very open to replying to your comments. If you have show requests, if you have unanswered questions from our show, please feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. And please subscribe to our podcast. We are simply called The Health Hub. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcasts on the Radio Maria website, which is www.radiomaria.ca. And you can find it on my website, which is www.kathybiasse.com. So we make it really easy for you to track us down and to find us. And if you like what you hear, please do leave us a comment. As I always say at the beginning of the shows, we have fantastic guests on our show and spreading the word of our podcast and what our guests have to say is just an incredible way of really spreading health news. And you're doing other people a great service by promoting these guests who have have such great cutting edge health information as you will find out today on our show. Our show last week, the microbiome in your eyes, which has gained um, a lot of uh, garnering a lot of um, listening pleasure, if you might say, people are very uh, been very responsive to that show. With Dr. Harvey Fishman is up and ready for you to listen to it. Was very interesting. Um, I learned quite a bit from that show. So again, do we have a lot of guests? Feel free to browse all the shows we're hitting. I think today might even be our 80th show. It is our 80th live show. So another small milestone for for our podcast. So our show today is entitled The End of Alzheimer's. And our guest is Dr. Thomas Lewis. I thought it would be fitting to start off uh, this segment of the show with things that we can incorporate right now to keep our brain sharp. And there are actually a lot of things that we can do. And it doesn't matter what age you are. I got a fly buzzing around me. It doesn't matter what age you are. As we learned last week, right around 30, 30 years old is the key, key time to start thinking about brain health. But it probably doesn't pop into into our minds at that point in time. It's a busy stage at age 30. But um, incorporating some of these things on a daily basis is not hard to do. And it really does set us up for brain function going on into a later life. So I'm going to give you a bunch of them. 
First off is do something. There is very, very good science supporting the notion that regular aerobic exercise is extremely important for long-term health of your brain, for mental fitness. The sweet spot seems to be at least 30 minutes of physical activity every other day. And, you know, it's not running a marathon. Uh, It can be. But, uh, you know, for the average Joe, it's very, you know, get up and walk in the morning. You know, make it a habit. Uh, It's beautiful to walk this time of year in Toronto. The weather is uh, cool and crisp. We have quite a change from um, last week. But get out and walk. Vary your speeds of walking. If you can get into a little trot, that's fine. But do something. It really is proven. You've heard the importance of exercise in so many other spheres of health, but brain health, A number one, get out there and do something. Get enough sleep. When we don't sleep, a recent study has found that proteins build up on the synapses, possibly making it hard to think and learn new things. So again, the, the practices that we're talking about aren't something new, but the avenues that they travel are get enough sleep. You've heard on uh, one of our podcasts with why we sleep, that there is a sweet spot for sleep. We're talking seven to nine hours. Dr. Garcia Real mentioned that to us. Very important for brain health. Get your sleep. Know your body, know your circadian rhythms, know your timing. Shut the lights off, shut the computers off, go to bed. Manage your stress levels. Stress floods the brain with harmful chemicals, possibly affecting the hippocampus and other areas of the brain that are involved with memory. Living a balanced lifestyle, pursuing relaxing activities, which you can tie right back to exercising, to walking, are important pieces of obtaining, of keeping a positive mental health. Also working your brain. Now, we've, we've seen, you know, I think you've probably heard the commercials, you've heard the things about you doing crosswords, doing Sudoku. Science behind that, uh, I'm not sure, is as strong as the science for tackling something new. I guess you can consider doing Sudoku and crosswords is challenging your brain, something new. But what... Um, what this is, is really challenging your brain with, with new knowledge. Tackle something new. Take a different way home. You know, we, we, we program our brain, and I think this came up in a show too. Uh, we do the same thing over and over again. Sometimes we don't realize how, how we got to some place. We don't realize what we've done because we do it all the time. Take a new way home. Challenge your brain. Take a course. Learn something new. You know, making new connections improves your brain health. And the more you incorporate other senses into your learning, the better the brain health as well. So um, what I'm thinking of is learning something like pottery, learning to play or, or an instrument where you're getting tactile functioning as well. Um, those things really add on to our brain health. Another thing is repeat what you know. Uh, repeat what, you, what you've heard. Uh, say it over and over again, again, making those connections. When you want to remember something you've just heard or read or thought about it, say it out loud, write it down, reinforce these things. I mean, this goes back to uh, high school and university as well. The best way to remember something, if your professor is talking to you, is to write it down and then transfer it onto your computer. Again, making those brain synapses connections. And Another thing that's very, very important is to 
Forget about those aging myths. And we discussed this with uh, um, Ashton Applewhite in our show, Beating Back Cultural Biases of Ageism. Believing myths um, about your memory will be failing will help contribute to a failing memory. So if you believe your memory will decline, it will uh, probably decline because you won't, won't work as hard to keep that memory going. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, but the opposite is true. If you believe that you can keep a, a sharp mental outlook, then you will do it. You will work on it. So, you know, these aging myths are, as we heard, a lot of them are myths. So don't buy into them. And I would be remiss if I did not say, eat a good, healthy diet. Your brain is called upon to do many, many things. So well-balanced diets, whole foods, eliminate the processed foods, and as a nutritionist, I have to stick that in there. So eat a good diet that that gives your brain the fuel that it needs to perform all these vital, vital functions. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas Lewis. He is a medical scientist. He holds a PhD in chemistry from MIT and certification from the Harvard School of Public Health. He is an entrepreneur and healthcare professional with expertise in toxic substances, drug development, biotechnology, health technology, and medical protocol development. For the past 12 years, he has worked closely with senior researchers and clinicians at Harvard Medical School and has developed a program for chronic disease, root cause prevention, screening, diagnosis, and treatment. Alzheimer's disease and the most serious eye diseases, macular degeneration and glaucoma, have been a particular focus of his. Today, our learning points are what are vital present and future interventions for Alzheimer's disease? From current research, are there strategies for preventing Alzheimer's disease? And are there relevant diagnostic tests for Alzheimer's disease? This and much, much more. Please stay tuned. We will be back in a few minutes. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Again, our show is live today. You can call in at 416-245-1534. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. And do feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Good morning, Dr. Lewis. How are you today? Kathy, great to be on the show today. Fantastic to be here. Thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us and talk about something that is uh you know, it's touched a lot of people and a lot of families of uh, Alzheimer's people. Sorry, let's try that again. It's touched a lot of people, this disease, Alzheimer's. I know myself, um, my father uh, has Alzheimer's disease, or we, we think he does anyways. It's hard to, to, to decipher, but definitely suffering. So thank you for the work you do. It's so, so very important. How did you get involved in this area of, of research? Well, I don't want to be boastful, but I think we can pretty much figure out if your your dad has Alzheimer's or not. And I want to tell your Canadian audience, I'm assuming you have quite a bit, a few from Canada listening on, is my mentor at Harvard, 41 years at Harvard Medical School, um, is a joint resident of the U.S. and Canada, born in Sorrel. And uh, he was an ophthalmologist. And what makes him unique is that the eye is actually an outcropping of the brain. There's a lot of, lot of research that shows this. And eye diseases actually are very correlated to uh, brain diseases, and they tend to happen 10 to 15 years ahead of time, so you have an early warning system. So 
that's the profundity. So how I got into Alzheimer's is 15 years ago, my dad died of Alzheimer's. And 14 years ago, I met Dr. Clement Tremp, and I basically gave up everything I was doing to pursue his work and help him along the path of, of bringing this knowledge to, to the world. So um, last week, I was in Switzerland. I was invited to a very uh, selected group of researchers from all over the world, 24 of them, talking about Alzheimer's. And there was a group from Naples, Florida, that was also there offering, they've, they've created this uh, program called Alzheimer's Germ Quest, and they're offering a million dollars to anybody who can prove that Alzheimer's is unequivocally, in some instances, caused by infection. And the researcher that sponsored it, I believe, should win the award. We'll see, we'll see if that really happens. But the interesting thing is, out of the 24 people, I was the only one there that's not treating a mouse, you know, doing research. We actually work with real live people. So, um, but the key thing is it's, it's all about early detection. I thought, Kathy, you did a brilliant introduction. Thank you. Talking about all those risk factors. And so when you cut to the chase and try to figure out what exactly it all meant that you were saying, it really means that Alzheimer's is not a disease of the brain only. It's really a disease of the whole system, our whole terrain. So it's a sick brain in a sick body for the most part. It's funny so if you because you can do things to establish great health, you can keep your brain healthy as well. The, the just, you know, the, the few minutes that you've been talking just raises so many points in my mind. We we've had uh, we had a conversation last week and this is coming up more and more that the eye is not just the gateway of the soul, it's the gateway of the whole human body, number one. And number two, uh, this the the conference that you went to in Switzerland, they're offering money to just just the fact that they're offering money to to verify that some Alzheimer's is caused by infectious disease sort of makes me think that the idea that the thought process is that Alzheimer's is caused by many different pathways. Well, um, it is and it isn't. I mean, I'm just writing to the to the sponsors of that prize um, and explaining that so many instances of brain fog or or memory lapses are caused by what I call minor energy crises. So, you know, your brain, your brain uses 10 times more energy than any other tissue in your body. You know, it's only two and a half percent the mass of your entire body. You have the carotid arteries supplying blood to the brain, carry 25% of the oxygenated blood up there. So anything that affects uh, metabolism and, and nutrient delivery and energy affects the brain severely. The, the downside is from a diagnostic perspective um, for a neurologist is that the brain is so resilient, it can overcome this energy deficiency for a long, long time. And when you finally um, realize through symptoms that there's something going on in the brain, it's usually very progressed. That's why backing up to the eye and other things and recognizing these warning signs early is truly the only way to reverse this disease. We've reversed very late Alzheimer's disease. I know it's an audacious statement, but I could provide your listening audience with uh, verifiable proof there, but we really have backed up. So for example, I wrote an article with Dr. Trump that was published earlier this year, and it's called, It's Never Too Early or Too Late, End the Epidemic of Alzheimer's by Preventing or Reversing Causation from pre-birth to death. Now, I know pre-birth sounds pretty 
pretty bizarre when you're talking about a disease that happened 70 years later, but I showed in that paper that people born in high um, premature birth areas, which is often tied back to infection, like periodontal infection, America has the highest premature birth rate in the developed world. It's twice as high as, as uh, Europe. And we're finding periodontal infection in the placenta. Well, it turns out that mom can pass on certain factors, infectious factors, in fact, that can, that can then matriculate later in life. Think about shingles. That's herpes zoster virus that should be completely uh, quiet, but it's coming out to play later in life, um, and we call that shingles. It's true of other infectious species. So there's a lot of warning signs along the path. Depression. Chronic depression is an early warning sign of a physiological change in your brain. And people depressed, we now know, have, have much more Alzheimer's later in life than people who aren't depressed. Type 2 diabetes. What type 2 diabetes is, it's really insulin resistance. The cells in your body are incapable of taking in caloric fuel because they've been put under stress so frequently with the high carb diets. So what insulin resistance and type two diabetes is, it's really an energy crisis. So for example, you, you look at that child who's very heavy, they have plenty of calories. What they don't have is plenty of nutrients. And how does the body know that the brain knows that. So the brain, the brain's only recourse is to tell you you're hungry and hope the heck you feed it something that'll nourish it and other dependent tissues. And if you don't do that, you'll remain hungry. And if you only eat high calorie, low nutrient density foods, you're going to gain a lot of weight and the cycle goes on and on and on. But it's a very strong risk factor. Matter of fact, Brown University coined the term type three diabetes for Alzheimer's about 12 years ago. And David Perlmutter, a neurologist uh, out of Naples, Florida, brilliant guy has shown that even slightly elevated glucose levels implying insulin resistance implying a, an energy crisis in a highly metabolic tissue is a strong risk factor for alzheimer's later in life so you know we have to start looking we have to start looking beyond neurologists and beyond brain only the brain only paradigm to find solutions for this disease so it's a multifaceted uh, approach you have to take. You're not landing solely on infection. It sounds like inflammation may be underlying a vast majority of the, of the points that you just brought up. You're, you're well-schooled. And what I did, be, everybody was talking about their mouse studies in Switzerland, and I, I just tr started showing busts of people uh, in history that, sh that led, led us down this path. You know, it's... it's um, Ecclesiastes, it's all been done before. So Claude Bernard in um, 19th century France, the first doctor who really uh, used experimental methods to study health and disease showed that our environment, our internal terrain, our entire internal terrain really dictates health and disease susceptibility. And then Louis Pasteur, one of the authors of the germ theory, said certain germs could form could create certain type of disease. It turns out they're both right, but on Pasteur's deathbed, he said in a famous quote, he said, Bernard was right. The seed, meaning infection, is nothing. The soil, meaning your internal health, is everything. 
So we have a very simple thesis. It's complicated to implicate, implement, but it's very simple, is we have to make you as healthy as possible overall and for your brain, and then you'll be resistant to this inflammatory cascade that is created that makes you vulnerable to infection. And once the infection takes hold in your brain, it's extraordinarily difficult to, um, to reverse. I mean, myself, Dr. Trump, and others have done it, but I'll give you an example. If we find that you have infectious Alzheimer's, which most people who are really going downhill hard have, you know, it didn't start that way, but then, then it progressed to that. They became, became susceptible to op- opportunistic infection. Um, it, it could take as much as a year or more to even begin to reverse that out of your brain because these bugs get inside the cells. And there was a guy at uh, McMaster University in 2003, uh, Mark Loeb, Dr. Mark Loeb was, was doing work in this area in Canada. Um, I'm actually interested in tracing what happened to him. I tried a couple times, but you know, it's such a controversial topic, yet we're trying to lim- eliminate beta amyloid and tau. And every drug trial, over 300 of them over the last 20 years, trying to eliminate these targets has failed, yet we keep working in this space. You know, it's, um, it's funny, so, the more I talk to experts like yourself, the more I think that um, we all have certain weaknesses, and this inflammation attacks our weaknesses, whether it manifests itself in a brain disease a heart disease, cancer. Is that, is that anywhere near a, a, a right statement? That, that's, that, let's call it 99% correct because I, I call these, these bugs that get around, they're opportunistic, they're like hobos. You know, they jump on the railway, which is our circulatory system, and they go where they find it most hospitable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Lyme disease. That, I mean, um, a couple of years ago, you know, our society is in denial about these, these simple basic mechanisms. You know, 150 years ago, we all died of infection, and now we call it cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, and, we've labeled and Alzheimer's. It. And yeah, we've actually, labeled it now. A, pardon me? We've, a, we've labeled it, is what I'm... You, 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 all these diseases now are just labels for the same underlying it's, thing, it sounds like you're saying. It's, it's labeled. So Chris Christopherson was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He's the singer-actor from, you know the 80s kind of time frame. And uh, then they retracted it. They said, no, he actually had Lyme disease. But they didn't realize it's the exact same thing. Mm. Lyme disease has a spirochetal bacterial called Borrelia bordoferi, and it's pretty well shown. One of the researchers at, in Switzerland, she's, she's Swiss, she published a paper in 1993 called uh, Alzheimer's a spirochetosis with a question mark. And spirochetes are a certain type of bacterial infection. Um, some emanate from the gums of your, your mouth. Um, some come from what are called vectors or bugs that transmit disease through, through the bite, ticks, for example, and then slowly lead. The, the problem we face in, in proof is they're called cryptic. You can, you know, Christofferson was probably bitten by a tick when he was 15 years old. And this thing held in a latent state, just like I was talking about shingles, and then came out to play in his body when it found vulnerability or when he got sick or any number of consolation of factors that just made him more vulnerable to this, this cascade. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the burden of proof is so challenging. And, and, and the standard of care 
it's it's Machiavellian principle. They own the power and they're going to keep the power. And, and people like myself who are trying to say that what they're doing is wrong for the most part. Um, the, the burden of proof they're acquiring before they'll adopt it into the standard of care. So, for example, the health system in Canada will take another 30 years. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not one to wait for that. I'll let the researchers play, play with their mice and all that. But in the meantime, I have a program that actively diagnoses and helps people today. You know, it, uh, what's come out of that in my mind is that you just can't give up on your health. You can't allow weaknesses to set in because I think as, as you're very readily pointing out, it, you know, we probably all have some of these bugs in us and they're just waiting to, to take hold. So keeping up on your health is an extremely important thing to do. We're going to take a quick break here. And then when we come back, we're really going to get into your research, if you if you would uh, be so kind to tell us about that and where you sort of vary and, and vary off the path with uh, sort of allopathic current uh, treatment of Alzheimer's. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're having a fascinating conversation here with Dr. Lewis. Dr. Lewis, I want to get into some brass tacks here about your research and how you can help uh, us uh, with Alzheimer's, with prevention perhaps, and with other, other different ways of tracking the disease. Are there any relevant diagnostic tests for Alzheimer's disease that you can point us at? Well, that's a fantastic question because the standard of care is still looking for the, the Amwood and Tau markers. But let me just tell you how, how I got into this with Dr. Trump. So he developed um, ways to treat eye diseases as systemic diseases way back in the 80s. In the 90s, he actually developed a treatment protocol for macular disease, glaucoma, and other eye diseases. And, you know, we learn more from patients than we do from research. There's no question. And so patients would be coming back, say, a husband and wife, and let's say the wife had some memory impairment. The husband would, would re- report back to Dr. Trump that the treatment that he put uh, his wife on was leading to a memory improvement as well. The eye was improving. And the interesting thing about the eye is we have two eyes, one brain. So usually the eye diseases don't happen both eyes at the same time. And statistically, the, the rate of, of uh, progression into the second eye is well characterized. And Dr. Trump, unlike anybody in the world, was able to arrest the disease from progressing into the, the unafflicted eye. But the patients were coming back and, and telling him that that the memory was improving as well. And so it, it was controversial for him, though, because, you know, we're, we're um, well, he, he developed a set of blood tests. And so we like to say there's a specific blood test for Alzheimer's. You know, we already discussed that it's it's all these nutritional factors, exercise. So the factors that really tell us about future chronic disease and Alzheimer's fits into just a subset of chronic disease are things like fasting insulin, things like C-reactive protein, which is a measure of vascular inflammation in the smallest of the vessels, the capillaries. It's homocysteine that Dr. McCulley at Harvard has shown is very toxic to vessels and the Framingham study, the largest ongoing study in the history of mankind since 1947, shows that for every five points of 
elevation in homocysteine, there's a 40% increase in Alzheimer's disease. So there's no way we can't say that this isn't a diagnostic for Alzheimer's. We've developed a, a, a methodology and an algorithm that we call our chronic disease temperature. And it's simply an amalgamation of multiple blood markers that are highly correlated with people who have Alzheimer's disease. And so we create a very simple score and it tells you where you are on the health disease continuum. Then we look at, then we look at the eye. If you have cataract, glaucoma, macular degeneration, um, these are all telling signs. But then we look in the back of the eye with extraordinarily sensitive tests that a lot of optometrists and ophthalmologists have call an OCT. And we can see in the retina if there's atrophy occurring very accurately. Matter of fact, the OCT device, optical coherence tomography, is a thousand times more precise than MRI because of the type of light it uses to create the, the image. So if you're 50 years old and your doctor says, hmm, I think I see some really warning signs of eye disease and we run an OCT on you and you see th we see thinning, I can guarantee you, because it's been published many, 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 I'm not talking a thousand times, that your brain is also experiencing atrophy. And what, what Mass General has showed is that if you walk into you know, this Harvard hospital and you have a little memory impairment, when they do an MRI on you, they can't see the details, but they can tell you that you're between 15 and 20% brain atrophy at that point. So, can we back you know, up a sec the, here? Because what is that connection between macular degeneration and memory loss? So, so macular degeneration is a neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative condition, and it's happening in, this, in a surrogate tissue to the brain. It's actually happening to the optic nerve. So macular degeneration is a vascular condition that's leading to the deterioration of the optic nerve. Well, the same pathology is help, happening in the brain. So in my book, The End of Alzheimer's, Chapter 6, I have a detailed um, set of studies on macular degeneration and glaucoma that show that these people who have this disease progress to Alzheimer's at a much higher rate than people without these diseases, and the risk factors are all the same. Um, I don't want to say smoking and being overweight. I'm talking about elevated C-reactive protein, elevated homocysteine. So it is a, the eye is literally a canary for your brain. It's a physiological outcropping. I'm looking at a book by, on my, on my bookshelf right now by a distinguished professor at Harvard, John Dowling. It's called the retina, an approachable part of the brain. And it truly is. So, um, you know, I, I would suggest your audience, if they have any doubt, go into Google and just type in glaucoma and Alzheimer's, and you'll find a dozen papers by name that, that will indicate that glaucoma is a form of Alzheimer's in the nervous tissue of the back of the eye. Okay, and, well, that begs and, the question, then, what can we do? Uh, uh, what, what are correct. some scientific researched interventions when we see these warning signs? So the so what we've done because because both the retina and the brain are so metabolically active, the first thing you must do, the first thing you must do with anybody in a preventative mode, preventative, but also in a treatment mode because if you don't solve the underlying 
energy crisis, you won't, you won't make them better. You must solve the insulin resistance conundrum. And I'm not talking about what is your fasting glucose or what is your A1C. I'm talking about what is your fasting insulin. And that fasting insulin must be completely optimized. And the reason is, look, diabetics get much more Alzheimer's. Diabetics get much more cancer. Why? Because they have an excess fuel floating around in their vessels and they're feeding cancer cells. Glucose feeds cancer cells. Glucose feeds bacteria and viruses and other pathogens. So the number one thing you can do is make changes. And I'm not talking about lowering, lowering it with drugs. You must bring your cells back out, out of that inflammatory state into an insulin sensitive state. That's the first thing you do. Okay. And I have to ask here because most of us um, understand that glucose is the primary fuel for our brain. So what are you suggesting, uh, you know, if someone's listening to the show and you're saying you'll cut out the carbohydrates, bring down your insulin, are you talking about um, processed foods and so forth? Or are you veering right, us? Right, processed foods. Okay. So you're not so, veering so us the, towards a, a high-fat diet necessarily. You're veering us towards a whole foods diet. Well, yeah, a whole foods diet. But, you know, your brain, the brain does do very well on, on ketones on ketone bodies and and we found that for example if we can downregulate sugars and carbohydrates and and my my recommended diet is very simple it's 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 fish and vegetables you know and i'm not saying that's a lifelong diet but if you are not insulin sensitive this is i will call that a therapeutic diet to bring yourself back to insulin sensitivity because see in your on, on your neurons every all of the electrical transmissions, the communication, the information is all conveyed on the cell membranes. You know, in a wire in your home, it's all the copper wire on the inside, but in neurons, it's all on the exterior. And the composition of these membranes is extremely important to cellular communication. And the omega-3 fatty acids are a, a very significant component of cell membranes. So, you know, glucose is a fuel but we need the building blocks. I, I tell people that, you know, in your home, you have a furnace, but um, that is only part of the story. So you put calories into the furnace to, to make heat. But what about the electrical system? What about the plumbing system? What about all the other infrastructure in your home? So, so we have too much emphasis on calories and not enough emphasis on nutrients. So obviously, high, high nutrient-dense foods, which would be any food that does not contain a label, for example, and with, with extra emphasis on, on seafood-based diets. So you look at the, the Korean population, the Asian population, they eat a lot of fish. They have much, much less coronary disease and less, much less Alzheimer's as well. So that's, that's a really important thing. We, Dr. Trump was a big advocate because we're stuck in America with a, with a sad, sustained American diet. He would supplement almost everybody that came into his office if he could convince them with cod liver oil. Why? Because the cod liver oil has a variety of fats, including all the important marine fats for uh, neuronal um, integrity, but also vitamin A and vitamin D, which are very strongly antibiotic. I mean, they, they were using cod liver oil as a therapy against consumption, which is tuberculosis back in the 1800s. And it reduced mortality by a factor of three. So it's very clear 
that uh, the vitamin A and other components in cod liver oil are extraordinarily um, immune system boosting. We won't call them antibiotics. Your immune system is your best antibiotic against all infection. Now, when you die, you immediately start decomposing, but you're not interacting with the environment. So it, it's all happening from within. When you die, your immune system's zero. So the, the, the simplest way to look at this is how do we boost our immune system to as close to 100% as possible? So the way you do that is you start providing the nutrients for your cells to not be an energy crisis. And all these diseases are, are telling you that you're really nutrient deficient mm -hmm. because your immune system is just not operating at 100%. And uh, so, you know, iodine, if, if you don't have enough iodine during pregnancy, you know, your, your children won't, be, won't develop with a strong brain. You know, so we, we need, you know, we're all on a salt-restricted diet because we're afraid of hypertension. But we're, we're malnourished in terms of nutrients. It's called the sodium-potassium pump. All, everything we do in our body, when you move a muscle, it's all electric. When your heart beats, it's electric. The sodium-potassium pump drives so much of this. So if you're in a, on a sodium-restricted diet and you're eating processed food, guess what? You're mineral deficient. So all, all these things play in. And then in our program, if we meet someone like your dad that is presumed to have some cognitive impairment, we're gonna do a, a, our chronic disease temperature blood test to figure out what's going on, see what, the, see what the inflammatory burden of the individual is, see where their insulin resistance is, treat them to bring those markers into as best form as we possibly can over a six month period, and then evaluate again to see if there's still, if there is or still is an infectious burden, and at that point, we would treat the infectious burden. Um, we don't treat Alzheimer's, okay? We treat the infection. And everybody has a little, a little bit of it. And when we treat the infection, amazing things happen to brain health because it downregulates all the inflammation driving, driving the uh, cognitive dysfunction in the brain. Oh, you, you mentioned the sodium-potassium pump, and I know this may not be um, specifically on point to what, uh, what we're doing directly talking about, but uh, clinically speaking, are you seeing a greater imbalance of that sodium-potassium pump where you're seeing more and more patients high on the potassium end of the scale? We're actually seeing people more on the sodium end of the scale. I mean, I mean uh, well, you know, we're, it, it's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag because very few people are getting, are getting the the balance of nutrients they're not getting you know they're not getting the potassium but getting into the condition they have generally had excess sodium because all mm -hmm. the processed foods from the you know the things that even restaurants are using very very high sodium so you know i i talked about the the sodium restriction that tends to be more with seniors but there is there tends to be very much an excess of sodium throughout life in our, in our society and not enough of the micronutrient minerals. Um, so, you know, we obviously are proponents of the unrefined salts. Right. You know, you know white salt is, is refined processed salt. I mean, white sugar is refined processed sugar. What did they do? They took out the molasses. Sulfur is an extraordinarily underappreciated nutrient. That's why you have to eat egg yolks and, and other 
you know, the molasses, if you know, if you're going to have sugar, have molasses because it's extraordinarily high in, in sulfur compounds that are critical to cell membrane integrity. Okay. That was just a personal question I had to ask you because clinically, I... Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the RDA for sodium is 3.4 grams and that for potassium is 4.7. No one's getting enough potassium. Mm-hmm. So, okay. you know, most people are getting enough sodium except people that are really on a restricted diet, the so-called DASH diet, I believe. And I, I think that's very harmful to seniors. You know, you need, you need sodium. You know, the, the concern about high blood pressure is really a sodium-potassium imbalance. Okay. So restricting sodium is, is not the right way to handle brain health. And we see a lot of brain fog in a condition called hyponatremia, which is just a lack of sodium. But a 50-year-old eating a sad diet has no issue with sodium. They have a problem with potassium. Okay, good to know. Um, I'm going yeah. to uh, ask you a loaded question here. Um, yes, going back to the title of your book, The End of Alzheimer's, is it ever too late, in your opinion, to reverse major effects of Alzheimer's disease that has been clinically diagnosed? So, no, it's never too late. Um, it's all, let's say it's almost never too late, but the further on you go, just think of things, things are not linear in life. You know, you try to run a 12 second, hundred yard or hundred meter. It's extraordinarily difficult, but it's pretty easy to run a 30. But so you don't just creep up linearly. All of a sudden it accelerates in terms of being difficult. Drive, try to drive your car 140 miles an hour rather than 120, um, that kind of thing. So the further along you are, the more difficult it is. And what we have found in our clinical experience is someone who has clear dementia, clear Alzheimer's, the only way we're going to help that person is through a one-year program that involves a family member or caregiver who's completely dedicated and committed to that person and buys into our process because we are going to be interfacing on at least a weekly basis, guiding, measuring, directing, um, and, and testing, because that, that's the way it has to be. There is a lot of confusion with the individual. They obviously can't take care of themselves. There's sometimes some agitation and all that. So it's a, the, the people we've had success with have usually had a spouse or a child completely committed and directing the care. And, and so that's the complication. It'll, the conference I was at in Switzerland, you know, it's very clear that it's going to be at least 10 years before a pill is developed, but the pill is not going to, it's a process. You know, the, it's all, it's all a false hope. We'll never have a pill for this disease. It's a process. It takes people 30 years to get in. My rule of thumb is however long it takes a disease to matriculate, it's going to take that many months, at least, of complete commitment to back out of it. So, you know, diabetes, it takes you 10 years to get in. It's going to take you one year to get out. Alzheimer's, we can see the signs of Alzheimer's in the back of the eye 20, 30 years ahead of time with, with research instruments. You know, when, when someone dies, a young person dies in an auto accident, they do an autopsy, they can see, even at that age, some, some tangles and plaques in brain. So this is a disease that's matriculating for a long, long time. Thank God we're provided with a brain that's extraordinarily resilient and keeps us functioning, even though it's sick. 
So did that answer your question adequately? It did. It did. Um, and it, it gives hope for people. And then that's, that's what we always want to do is to, to give hope um, as we're pushing up against the hour. I'd like you to perhaps end off the show with what you think are the key tips for, for brain health in, in coming from your, your sphere and, and your background. But before that, just give us the optimal websites and social media handles that we can use to follow your work. And I will definitely put them up uh, so people can have them. But uh, if you give us the, the sites that you think are most beneficial, right. that'd be great. So, so where we offer to the public um, an opportunity to assess yourself on the Alzheimer's continuum and even, even pot- potentially move yourself in, in the right direction is our healthrevivalpartners.com. And so we're not huge on social media. We run social media and private groups for organizations that hire us, but healthrevivalpartners.com. And we can do anything from assess your brain with very robust testing, and and this can all be done remotely, uh, to the blood testing, to you go to your eye doctor and they send me the files and I can interpret it in terms of what, what what your eye is telling you about neurodegenerative disease. It's all, it's all in there. Perfect. Okay. Um, And what are your tips for, for us to to head out uh, today and work on our brain health? Yeah, well, you, you mentioned a, a bunch of fantastic things at the beginning, all of which I agree with. When it comes to exercise, you know, I, I prefer that people do, you know, if you don't strain your muscle, it won't grow. If you don't strain your brain, it won't grow. If you don't strain your bones, they won't grow. So when it comes to exercise, I like to see people do reps with heavy weights. Um, you know, I know seniors are saying, oh, but my doctor says, well, we measure you. If your vessels are healthy, C-reactive protein is good, you can push yourself a little bit. So um, like four sets rather than just doing the, the, the cardio type thing. And what that does is that releases growth hormone and hormones regulate all our, all our systems. Um, reduce the processed food. I, I would recommend that everybody take cod liver oil, find a good one. We use Carlson's and um, it's amazing. It, it gets rid of adult acne. It, we've reversed rheumatoid arthritis with this. I know it sounds hard to believe, but I can show you direct evidence of some of the things we've done, psoriasis, or anybody who's on these monoclonal antibody biologics, cod liver oil will take care of that. You know, I know it sounds like old-fashioned stuff, but you look historically, mom gave you chicken soup. What does it really mean? Broth. Broth is full of protein and nutrients, okay? Your grandmother gave your mother cod liver oil to uh, uh, prevent rickets, and make you less susceptible to epidemic infectious diseases like tuberculosis. Those are some of the the key things. Um, Look at your diet from a seafood perspective. Try to include more more fish, but also try to include more um, indigenous things to the sea. So seaweed salads and things like that that are very high in iodine. A lot of people have thyroid dysfunction because they don't have enough enough iodine in their body and they don't have the, the cofactor minerals. So, those are, those are some of the simple things. Move, but, you know, move, but push yourself. The, the second we get lazy, our body recognizes it doesn't need to, doesn't need to do that anymore, and it gets lazy too. So, but the, I would say, you know, Western Price showed that 14 indigenous um, cultures around the world in the 1930s, they all were healthy, and the common denominator was having some level of consistent seafood in their diet every day. Perfect. Thank you so much. Everybody, I hope you enjoyed the show full of wonderful advice. We will talk to you next week on The Health Hub.
have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.